Welcome to this series from Resurrection Life Church in Granville, Michigan. We're glad that you're here. Today we're in the fourth week of a six-week series on healing. And um, tonight we're going to cover the topic of overcoming the impossible. And Brent, thank you so much for leading tonight. Appreciate it. Give him a... We're just glad for Brent. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. All right. See, it's best if we all just stay flexible, right? The Bible's, uh, my interpretation of the Bible is blessed are the flexible, for they will not be broken, right? That's, that's what we do. So we're glad that we're here. Tonight we're going to be talking about overcoming the impossible. Um, that not only applies to healing, because that's where we're going tonight, but it also applies, really, you can apply these same principles no matter uh, what the challenge is that you have in your life. It starts off with our first couple weeks in this class, and that was, number one thing is, God is not making me sick. So God is not the author of my condition. God's not the, he's not the problem, he's the answer. Okay, that's the first, the first uh, particular instance is God is not the author of sickness. There's no recorded time ever in scripture that Jesus or God made people sick. There's tons of them where he made them well, but he, not, he doesn't make people sick. He doesn't have any sickness to give. God makes people well, not sick, okay? And when Jesus encountered Sickness, what was Jesus' response to sickness? He healed them, right? There's many, many instances in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is the account of Jesus' life on the earth, where he healed them all, and Jesus never refused to heal anyone that came to him with expectancy and with faith. Nobody, he never refused anyone, and that's very, very important. And number two, it's not God's will for us to remain in our current state. And that's a, that's, a, that's a hope statement because it should give us hope because God loves us too much to let us stay the same. Okay, God loves us all too much to allow us to stay the same. It's not God's will for us to stay in that condition that we're in right now. He wants us to get well. He wants us to be better. And the, the, the scriptural basis of that is if you look at Jesus, you can know what the will of the Father is, right? John 14, 9. I only do the things I see my father do. I only say the things I hear my father say. So if you want to know what the will of God is for any situation, look how Jesus interacted in that situation. So if you want to know how Jesus treats people who are caught in sin, look at how he treated the woman caught in adultery. How did he treat her? He had mercy, right? So he's merciful toward those that are caught in sin. He didn't judge her or stone her. He had mercy and compassion. But he also confronted her sin, right? He said, go and sin no more, right? He didn't say it was okay for her to continue in sin, but he also didn't condemn her and, and put her to death the way the law said to. So any, any situation that you find, it's just a rule of interpretation for scripture and a really a good way to look at life is if you wanna know how Jesus, what the will of God is, how Jesus would have reacted, look at how he reacted in scripture whenever he encountered a certain situation or a type of situation. 
How did he react? How did he respond to those things? And you'll have a very good indication. It's a roadmap of how we can walk in the will of God for our lives. So God's not making us sick. It's not his will for us to be sick, and we can do something about it. So tonight, we're going to start our next couple sessions on what can we do about our situation? What is it that we can do? It's not just, it's all by grace that you've been saved through faith, but faith receives what grace has provided. You get where I'm coming from on that? Faith receives what grace has provided. By grace you have been saved through the vehicle of faith that not of works, so your works don't buy you salvation, but it requires faith for you to get saved. It requires faith for you to be healed. It requires faith for you to receive anything from God. For without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11 says. So what are we, talk, what are we gonna talk about tonight? We're gonna talk about faith and overcoming the impossible. So if we look at the father of the faith is Abraham. And as the father of the faith, Abraham was the first one really to, to walk with God and be in covenant with God as we, as we look at scripture. He was really the father of the faith. He was a great man. As pastor said this last Sunday, here's a man that 4,000 years or so after he died, he was still on the cover of magazines. Now there's a great name, right? Um, Abraham. So what does it say in Genesis chapter 12? It says, the Lord said to Abram, his name, it's, it's important to remember, his name was Abram, A-B-R-A-M, Abram. Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to the land I will show you. And then this is God talking to him. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the, family of the, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is God's covenant, God's portion to Abraham. He's saying, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so as we look at, that's, he's the father of the faith, so he receives this promise, right? But if you look at Abraham's life, Abram was a wealthy man. He was an Ur of the Chaldees, and God sent him to the land of Canaan. And he said, this is the land that I'm going to give you. And he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. So God cut a covenant with Abraham. And he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. But Abram had a problem. Abram was getting up in years. At this time, he was 75 years old. And his wife was approximately 65. That's when God came to him and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Right? But he didn't have any children. Not a son, not a daughter. So Abram gets this promise from God, I'm gonna make you a great nation. However, he has no children. So the first, the first issue he had was he had a covenant with God and then God, a couple chapters later, God brought him outside. This is Genesis chapter 15, verses four through six. He said, then God brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven, count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. So, so God tells him when he's 75, I'm gonna make you a great nation. He still doesn't have any children. Then a few years later, he says to him again, 
Now I'm gonna give you a visual so you can grasp this with your mind. Here's all, look up, you see all those stars? That's how many children and descendants you're gonna have. Newsflash, Abram doesn't still have any children. But now he has an object lesson. He can look at the, at the stars every night and without any street lights, I bet it was pretty amazing to look up. And if you've ever been out away from the city and away from the light pollution, go way up north. I was up in Canada, 50 miles from the Arctic Circle. And I remember laying on a dock at about midnight watching satellites circle the earth because it was so dark up there you could actually see the satellites passing through. Now, he didn't see any satellites back then, you know, thousands of years ago. But what he saw was hundreds of thousands of millions of stars. And that's what God said, that's how many descendants you're gonna have. But one problem remained. He didn't have any children. And now every day the clock was, the biological clock was ticking on his wife and himself. Still no children, right? So then Genesis 16, his wife, Sarah, she makes a suggestion. Here's this 30-year-old Egyptian girl. Why don't you go make a baby with her and that's how God's gonna make you a great nation. Now, I, I'm sorry, but that was a bad idea, Sarah. That right there was a bad idea. However, I, in my notes, I call this the flesh detour. The flesh detour. Because God gave Abram a promise, but yet he tried to make it happen by his own will instead of by God's will. He tried to make it happen by his own doing or by his own actions instead of letting God lead him and direct him and trust God for this thing to happen. Many times this happens in our own life. We, we, we have a, a, a promise from God and God says that you're gonna do this or you're gonna do that and we think somehow that we've gotta make that happen. And all we get is a problem, right? We get, a, we get a, a big mess, just like Abram got here. He got himself a big mess by his flesh detour. So he did that. He, he had a baby by this gal named Hagar, who was a, um, a, one of his wife's servants, actually, one of her handmaids. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son Ishmael. And at this time, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So he got his promise at 75, and he got impatient at 85, 10 years later. So he had a son of the flesh called Ishmael. And then because he had that son of the flesh called Ishmael, it took 13 more years because Ishmael had to be considered an adult in the Jewish tradition and I believe that God's tradition. So 13 years later at 99, when Ishmael is 13, Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away because they have a new son in his name. He's got a new promise and his name is going to be Isaac. This particular time at 99 when Ishmael was 13, it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram again. I am the Lord Almighty. Walk before me, he said. Be blameless. I make a covenant with you. I'll multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face. And then God talked to Abraham. 
As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. This is God talking to Abraham. You shall be the father of many nations. He's talking to him, saying the same thing he said 14 years earlier. No longer shall you be called Abraham, but your new name shall be Abraham, which means father of many nations. So the, the, the new name, so he starts off with a promise, then God makes a covenant, then he messes it up by making a flesh detour, but then God gives him a new name, and you know what starts happening? A new name, and you talk differently. He had to start viewing himself differently. In fact, God thinks it's so important what we say about ourselves and what we say about our situation is that he said, now you don't even call yourself what you used to call yourself. You call yourself father of many nations. So everywhere Abraham went, he had to say, hey, how you doing? My name's father of many nations. And they said, oh, really? How many children did he have? Well, none. But I'm father of many nations. Good to meet you. I'm father of many nations. Nice to meet you too. Oh, well, how many children do you have? Well, none. But I'm father of many nations. And he had to continue. So he walked around saying he was the father of many nations long before he had even one child. What was that? That was called faith. And it was credited to him. It says it was accounted to him as righteousness because he trusted and believed God. Now, was he perfect? Here, Abraham's a great example. Abraham messed up, right? The whole Hagar thing was a big mistake. And then he lied later, and then he did a bunch of other stuff wrong, and it was just dumb stuff. But you know, even in the middle of all that, we can take heart and we can say, no matter, even if we're knuckleheads sometimes, even if we miss it, you know what, God can still use us if we'll just acknowledge it, if we'll own our own mistakes and ask him to, basically, we just need to repent, okay? Just turn away from whatever foolish thing we've done and repent like Abraham did. He turned away and it says, for I've made you the father of many nations. It says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations from you and kings shall come from you. So, and what happened then is then, his wife became pregnant. She had a son. His name was Isaac. He was the, it says, Isaac shall be the son of promise. Ishmael is your son, but Isaac is the son of promise. For Sarah shall bear the son of promise. So in the middle of being 75, already old, already past the age of childbearing, and it wasn't until he was 100 and Sarah was 90 that they had the son of the promise. It says, he hoped against hope and believed in him who had promised to be faithful, even though everything around him looked like it wasn't possible. So you might be looking at a situation and you look at it and you say, well, what I'm looking at right now, it's impossible for me to be well. Well, congratulations, it was impossible for Abraham to have children. It was impossible for Abraham to fulfill God's promise to him. God made him a promise. And I love what Romans 4 says. He considered him faithful who had promised. So if God has made a promise to you, you need to consider God faithful who has promised and not 
turn loose of your faith and not turn loose of God's promise for you, but hold fast to that promise and don't give up just because it looks impossible because you know what? It was also impossible for Jesus to raise from the dead, but he still did it, right? God specializes in doing the impossible. Jesus walked around doing impossible things all the time. He caused the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, right? The, 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 those that had lost their minds to be in full command of their senses and be in their right mind. God, through Jesus, healed every manner of sickness and disease that there was on the earth at the time, and he's still the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't matter what your impossible situation looks like. Jesus is still in, in the business of doing impossible things to those who will trust him. So I'm here to encourage you tonight. Trust God for the impossible. Abraham is our example. Abraham, we look at Abraham, and there's also a pattern that we can follow as believers. The number one thing we do as a believer, is we obey what the Lord instructs us to do. Whatever the Lord, you look at what Mary, the mother of Jesus, did when Jesus was on the earth, the wedding at Cana, Matthew chapter three, what happened? They ran out of wine at the wedding, right? What was Jesus' instructions to the people at the wedding feast? Somebody. What was, Jesus, what was the, Mary, the mother of Jesus' instructions to the people at the wedding? Anybody. You're right. Do whatever he says to do. And then wine will come later. But her actual instructions were, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. So Jesus said, go get vessels, not a few. I like that, what he said. Go get vessels, not a few. And go fill them all up with water. And it's somewhere around 150 gallons is what they got between 150 and 180 gallons of water in these gigantic clay pots, right? That's a lot of wine. I don't know how many people they had, but hopefully they had a lot of people to drink all that. Otherwise, they're all in big trouble. But bottom line is, when they dipped that ladle in there, what happened? The guy who was in charge of the feast said, wow, that's the best wine I've ever tasted. But yet it was just water, because Jesus had turned that water into wine. No, it wasn't a magic trick. No, there wasn't like some kind of Gatorade powder in the bottom of the jugs. It was literally a miracle. What did he do? He did the impossible. See, Jesus did all kinds of things that were impossible. He did things like walk through walls, you know that? And it wasn't just Jesus. When we look at the Old Testament, Elijah, it says one time, Elijah was somewhere, and the next thing you know, he was somewhere else. It says one time that he outran the king's chariots. I don't know about you. I don't care how fast you are. You could be Usain Bolt, okay, if you know who he is. You aren't going to outrun the king's chariots, not long term. One time it says he ran 18 miles and he outran the king's chariots. There's nobody that can do that without supernatural strength, okay? You do, God does impossible things all the time. And what we've got to do is we've got to put our mind around this and say, what seems to be impossible is not impossible for God. Is anything too hard for God? The answer is no. 
I'll tell you what the answer is. The answer is no. Nothing is too hard for God. His arm is not shortened, neither has his strength been abated, it says. So we need to, first and foremost, just decide that impossibilities are non-existent. Impossible is nothing. Okay, all things are possible to him who believes. All things. Everybody say it with me. All things. All things are possible. It doesn't matter what the situation is. If the doctors have said, you can't have a child, there's no way you can have a child, you can have a child. Why? Because impossible is nothing. Doctors say, oh, there's no cure for you. That's all right. There is a cure. His name is Jesus. Now, is it going to happen by the end of the night? I don't know. But I know this, it can happen. Because nothing is impossible. I had an incurable disease myself when I was 22 years old. I was diagnosed, they said I was gonna end up with a colostomy, which is a bag on my side, and they were gonna take out my colon because it was full of what was called chronic ulcerative colitis. And it had holes in my colon the size of quarters, and I was bleeding so badly I weighed 140 pounds. I couldn't eat for weeks and weeks and weeks. And in a moment's time on Good Friday, 1985, I came forward in this church and a person who had only been saved about the same length of time as me anointed me with oil. It wasn't Benny Hinn. It wasn't Richard Roberts. It wasn't even Pastor Dwayne. It was some guy who knew less about the Bible than me. Because it's not about who lays hands on you. It's about who you're believing past the person that's laying hands on you. Because you know what? None of those people I mentioned can heal you. None of them. It's the person that they're representing that can heal you. So you got to look past that. I'm actually thankful I didn't have some superstar lay hands on me because it was real easy for me to look past the guy that was laying hands on me because I'm looking at him going, Lord, I really wanted Pastor Dwayne to lay hands on me. And the Lord said, just okay. He's not, Dwayne, Pastor can't heal you anyway. It's me. And God just really spoke that to me. And I said, oh, yeah, okay. Well, I'll just close my eyes so I don't get distracted by him. He laid hands on me. He anointed me with oil, and I went back to my seat. You know what? I didn't feel any better than I did when I walked in. I felt terrible. I had 105 fever. I had so much pain in my back. I could hardly walk. I, had, I was this close to being septic because I had so much blood on the inside of me. And they said, you're going to end up in the hospital by the end of the night if you don't do something. And I was in very bad shape. I insisted on going to church, and my mom was, like, mad at me because she wanted me to go to the hospital instead. And I said, I'm going to church. And I was 22, stubborn, foolish, but I was believing God. And I went to church, and I sat there just in total pain the whole service. Then they asked for people to come forward. I went forward, had this guy lay hands on me that, like I said, didn't know much, but he laid hands on me. And I went back to my seat feeling just as sick as when I came. But I said, no, I, I, had been, I had been meditating on the word for weeks because I couldn't work at the time. So I'd been meditating and putting the word in my heart, putting the word in my heart, putting the word in my heart. And I said, if I can just get to church. I had read that story in Mark where the woman who said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be well. And I kept saying to myself, if I can just get to church and have hands laid on me and have anointed somebody anoint me with oil, I know I'll be well. 
And I did that. So I said, okay, that's my point of contact. I did that. I'm well. And I asked my sister to go with me. And I said, let's go eat. She gave me a sideways look like, you've lost your mind because if you go out to eat, you're going to end up in the hospital or emergency room because you're going to hemorrhage and you're going to, it's going to be ugly. But I said, just shut up and take me to a restaurant. So she took me to a restaurant. So you can say shut up to your sister. You can't say that to your wife. So if, if you want to have a good relationship. So guys, don't ever tell your wife to shut up. It's a bad thing. So, so the point is, we, she took me to the restaurant. I ordered that sandwich and that chocolate malt, which would have tore me up something horribly. And it was just, it was like, I look at it now and I go, can't believe I did that. But it was what I did because I, that was my point of contact. I said, I'm well. And I was to the point where I said, man, I don't care if I'm going to go to the hospital, I might as well go with a full stomach. So I, I, uh, I ordered it. And you know what happened? Before the food got there, I was, the food had just arrived and I bowed my head to ask God for a blessing on the food. And I had a, because I had such a high fever, I had a horrible headache where I couldn't, I couldn't have any light. So I'd literally sit like this all the time because light really hurt my eyes when you have a high fever. A lot of times your eyes hurt. So I was like this all the time because I couldn't bear the bright lights. So I'm sitting there like this and I'm praying. I'm praying over the food. And when I opened my eyes, I went, my head doesn't hurt. And I went, my stomach doesn't hurt. My back doesn't hurt. Oh my, I hate the whole, I ate the entire meal. I never had one symptom. And from that day to this, 31 years later, I've never had a symptom to this day. I have never had a symptom. All the bleeding stopped. All the bleeding stopped. And I was completely healed. I went to the doctor, it was Dr. Dozeman, Washington Square, gastroenterology in Holland, and that doctor took a sigmoidoscopy, which is a flexible optic fiber going the wrong way up a one-way street, and that's all I'm going to say about that. They took pictures of my colon, and they said, quote, you have a brand new colon. The Lord gave me a brand new colon. What through a guy that didn't know any more? He'd only been saved six months. But we all grabbed a hold of God's word and we operated and we activated our faith. See, so that's nothing is impossible. I have seen people get up from wheelchairs. I have seen people who were stage four cancer live. I've seen these things. I saw my dad, who was brain dead, live and, and continue in his life. Literally, he was brain dead, and everybody wanted to pull the plug. We said no. And you know what? 21 days later, he was released from the hospital. About three months later, he walked. And about six months later, he drove a car. Pretty good for a guy who was brain dead. See, God does impossible things. Do not allow a, a symptom or a report or whatever to define who you are. Our God is bigger than those things. We serve a God who specializes in causing people who are brilliant to go like this. And I'm scratching my head for those that are listening on tape. They, they scratch their head and they don't know what to think of it. When that doctor saw that picture of my colon, he scratched his head and he said, 
I don't know what to tell you. It, it appears you have a brand new colon. I said, really? That would be Jesus. And he goes, I really don't have anything other than that to say because I don't, I can't, I, I, he says, I don't know what else to tell you. You never have to come back here again. And I never went back there again because he said, you have a brand new colon. See, God has spare parts in heaven. I'm convinced because he gave me a new one. He gave me a new colon. The other one was all shot and tore up. So he gave me a new one. See, so it doesn't matter. God is a God who does impossible things. I want to stir you up to get hope, get your hopes up. So many times in the world, people say, oh, don't get your hopes up. I say, get your hopes up. Why? Because now faith is the evidence of things hoped for, right? Right? The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's evidence. It's substance. But it's, you got to have hope. What are you hoping for? If you're not hoping for anything, then you're not going for anything. we got to have some hope. So get your hopes up. Everybody just get your hopes up. I would say, let's all get our hopes up. So what do we do? What's our response? First of all, obey. Second of all, meditate on the word. Keep your thoughts focused. Many times we can look at the word, we can look at the, the symptoms around us, and the enemy's always there bombarding our mind. What if it doesn't work? What if this? What if this? What if this? And I would say your answer to all those things needs to be Philippians chapter four, finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, just, whatsoever things are pure and lovely, of a good report, if there's anything virtuous or anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things and the peace of God will be with you. You meditate on the things which are good, lovely, true, virtuous, of a good report. Don't meditate on constantly negative news. That's, we can't meditate, we can't have a diet of all the negativity around us or all the reasons why um, it's not going to work. We've got to focus and put our mind and meditate on the word of God. We've got to meditate on the word. The word will change you. It's sharper, it's active, it's more sharp than a two-edged sword. The word of God is alive, it's active, it will change you. If you meditate on the word, a lot, you know what's gonna happen? People are gonna take notice and they're gonna say, there's something different about you, right? They're gonna start saying, hmm, there's something unique about you that I can't quite put my finger on or I can't figure out. Why is it? Because you have God's word on the inside of you. God's word will change you. God's word is, is real, it's active, it's alive. And God commands us we are commanded in the word to believe his word over our circumstances. So as we look at the word, it says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's Philippians 4 again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. What if things are bad? Don't rejoice that they're bad. Rejoice because you're saved. Rejoice because your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice because of find something good that's going on and rejoice about that. See, if you wait till everything's perfect in your life before you rejoice, you're always gonna have a reason not to rejoice. So I would say, start rejoicing and just rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Why? Because God made it and you could be dead and in hell right now. 
And I'm thankful I'm not dead and in hell. I'm thankful I'll never go to hell. That's the number one thing I'm thankful for. See, but that's all I've ever earned in my life is to go to hell. But yet, everything else is by grace, okay? So we could be thankful and rejoice no matter what our circumstance is, no matter what the current situation is, we can rejoice. We can be, decide to rejoice. And I would, I would really encourage us to rejoice. So what else do we do? We have to resist condemnation in the middle of our circumstance. We have to resist condemnation. Condemnation is the kiss of death when it comes to your faith. You cannot have condemnation and faith in the same, in the same person consistently. It doesn't work because condemnation is of the enemy and faith is of the Lord and they don't coexist. See, condemnation says, you're no good, this is never gonna change, oh, you deserve whatever you've got. And whenever the enemy says to me, you deserve what you're getting, I'll say, absolutely, I deserve a lot worse than I'm getting. You're absolutely right, Mr. Devil. I deserve a lot worse than I'm getting, but by grace, you're a loser, get out of my life. And because I deserve a lot of bad things, but thanks be to God, I don't get what I deserve, we get what Jesus purchased for us. See, you never, I don't argue and say, well, I'm, I don't deserve this. Whatever's happening in our lives, if it's bad, the saying you don't deserve it is not a, that's not a valid argument um, because in reality, every good thing we have in our life, we don't deserve either. It's by grace that we've been saved. So it, it, it's fruitless to, to, to be whining or to be complaining about, oh, I deserve better than this. In actuality, none of us deserve better than what we got. But the reality is, Jesus has purchased so much more than what we have, he wants better for us. So condemnation is like this. The Holy Spirit corrects, the devil condemns. So here's how you tell the difference between correction of the Holy Spirit and condemnation from the devil. It's a real easy test, okay? So if this thought that you have causes you to be, to be uncomfortable, but yet not hopeless, it's, prob it's the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will make you uncomfortable, trust me. His, his job, one of his jobs is to make you uncomfortable because comfort is not our friend. Comfort is, 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 is just what we like, but it's not really where we need to go. But if you're uncomfortable, but not hopeless, Welcome to the Holy Spirit. But if you're hopeless and depressed and you just want to go crawl in a hole and sleep for a year or worse, I'm sorry, you have just encountered condemnation. The Holy Spirit will never produce that in you. That's always the enemy and you need to resist that and decide that is not part of your life. That's where depression comes from. That's where all those bad things come from. But being, you have to be willing to be corrected because we all need correction. So if you just immediately brush off everything that is correcting as condemnation, which much of today's society does, the second you try to correct something, they immediately say, stop judging me. I'm not judging you. I'm trying to help you here. And I'm not saying you're hopeless. I'm saying if this changed, life would get better because this is self-defeating behavior, but many people don't want to hear any correction. They immediately say, if you're correcting me, that means that you're judging me and you're condemning me. 
That's not the case. If you have, if it makes you uncomfortable, it's correction, but it's not hopelessness, embrace it. That's the Holy Spirit and good things are coming. But if it's, when, it, when, the, when this voice comes and it causes you to go all the way to the bottom, that's condemnation, resist it and repel from that because that is not where we're called to go. So you have, God has not given us the, the condemnation. That is not from the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but according to the spirit. So there's no condemnation. So we need to resist that, resist that very strongly that we do not get into condemnation because you can't believe God for the impossible while you think you're a worm. Okay? If you think, oh, I'm such a piece of dirt. Oh, God would never help me. And you get this Eeyore thing all over you. If you don't know who Eeyore is, watch Winnie the Pooh. It's one of the best things ever. Okay? <laughs> don't be, you can be a tigger, but don't be an Eeyore, okay? Because Eeyore, he's, oh, I'm just a donkey. Oh, where's my tail? He's always depressed about everything. Nothing ever works out for me. You know what? You ain't gonna, you are not gonna believe God and accomplish the impossible with Eeyore as your best friend. Okay? It's not gonna happen. Okay? So you've gotta believe, you've gotta refuse that, you've gotta push that aside, and you have to get to the point where you resist temptation to be condemned. Next, after you resist temptation, we need to determine the will of God for your situation. We've already established it's God's will for you to be well. But what, what, how does that, what does that look like? What are the steps? What are, what are the things that you can do? Here's what we're gonna, we're just gonna go through this quickly. We need to determine the will of God for your situation. How do we discover the will of God? You discover the will of God through his word, number one. What does the word say about your situation? Next, you discover the will of God through his voice. John 10, 27, my sheep know my voice and the voice of a stranger they will not follow. You listen for that still small voice on the inside while you're reading scripture, while you're praying, practice hearing the voice of God. You can hear the voice of God. It's not something you hear with your ears, it's an impression you hear with your heart. And it's like, you know it, but you don't really know why you know it, but you know it. And anybody who's ever heard the voice of God, you go, yeah, that's pretty much it. You don't hear it with your ears, you hear it with your heart, and you just know it's God, and you can't explain why, because his spirit talks to your spirit, and you just know what's going on, okay? So by prayer and listening, I would say, you pray and then you listen. Prayer is a two-way conversation, not just a one-way monologue. So you pray, and then you be quiet, and you listen for a while. And you can, you know, if all you hear is crickets, start to pray again, okay? And eventually, what will happen is that you will get an impression, and you'll go, was that you, Lord? And, or, but you need to discern what the will of God is for you. And that's one of the ways. The word of God will always confirm the will of God. And the will of God confirmed by the word will never be in contradiction with his spoken word to your heart. He'll never tell you to do something silly that's inconsistent with the word. He's not schizophrenic. Okay, so there will always be a congruency between what you hear in your heart and what the word of God says on the page. There will always be consistency there, always. 
There's never, there's never any disagreement there. And finally, the third way you determine what the will of God is, is by peace. You follow peace. Psalm 119, 165 says, great peace have they who love your law and nothing can make them stumble. Great peace have they that love thy law. That's Psalm 119. Psalm 54, 13. All your children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. That's good for anybody who has small children at home and they aren't sleeping at night. That's a good scripture for you, Isaiah 54. Great peace shall they have. Then Isaiah 55, 12, this is one of my life's verse. I got this verse two places in my home, on the wall, and these beautiful pictures. And it says, for they shall go out with joy and they shall be led forth by peace. The mountains and hills shall break forth before them and there'll be shouts of joy. There'll be shouts of joy. And the trees of the field shall clap their hands. But it says, they'll go out with joy and be led forth by peace. So whatever decision that you need to make, if, it, if it's God, it will produce joy and it will produce peace. You'll be led by peace. The next way, it's also peace, but it's, it has to do with Colossians 3, verse 15. I love the amplified version of this. Colossians 3, 15, it says, and let the peace, the soul harmony that comes from Christ's rule act as the umpire continually in your heart. Let the peace of God act as the umpire, which means out or safe. Act as the umpire in your heart, settling with finality all the questions in your mind. The peace of God settles with finality all the questions in your mind. So we look to the word, we look to the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, and then we follow peace, and we find out, and we follow that peace wherever God if we're, if we're gonna do something, and you pray about it, and inside, your insides just kind of go, sideways, don't do it. Just don't do it. Why? Because you don't have peace if your insides are knotted up. It's just, to me, it's the great barometer of whether it's a go or no-go. If I don't feel peace, we ain't doing it. Because every time I override that peaceometer, as I call it, my peaceometer or peaceometer, whatever you want to call it, if you override that thing, Things never work out. It's always bad. I mean, I've been doing this 32 years. It never works. It's always bad when you override the peaceometer. Okay? So don't override your peaceometer. Follow your peaceometer and do whatever it says because that's like your true north compass for, for where to go, what to do. Should I talk to this person or not? Hmm. If you don't, you know, if you're feeling led to witness to somebody and my son had this one time, I remember he said, I really felt like I was supposed to stop and talk to this guy. And right before I stopped, I got this sideways and he ended up dropping off the guy and he said, I dropped him off and I'm sure it was the drug house when I dropped this guy off. He thought, I just got out of there in a hurry. <laughs> so I said, well, when that, piece of, when that thing goes sideways, you need to get out of Dodge, man. Don't be, don't be going places you're gonna get shot. He said, well, God protected me because he was a young, foolish young man just like me. He's 19 years old. He's indestructible, right? Well, God protected him and he didn't get shot, so we're glad for that. But the, the point is, you follow the word, you follow the Holy Spirit and him speaking to you, and you follow peace. Next, 
We exercise our God-given authority through Jesus' name. Luke 10, 19 says, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. You have been given authority over all the works of the enemy. The Bible says nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now let's say, well, how's that work? Exactly the what it says. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. That's, that's the promise that we have. I would say grab a hold of that, write it on your hand in an ink pen if you can't remember it so that you remember it, memorize it, and every time you're feeling afraid, anytime you're feeling threatened, you say, thank you, Lord, that you've given me all authority over the enemy and nothing shall by, nothing shall by any means hurt me. And you can apply this to your children too if, you have a, if they're children that you have authority over and they're not out and about and you can still do it to some degree, but... Children in your household, you have absolute authority over them spiritually. You put a hedge of protection over them that nothing shall by any means hurt them. And you'll watch the blood of Jesus just cover them and watch all the enemy's plans just fall by the wayside. Why? Because you have authority over all the power of the enemy. We got, we, but authority left unexercised is useless. Authority left unexercised is of no benefit to anyone. So you can choose to not exercise your authority and you can just get beat up and run over if you choose to. Many people in the world do. But I would encourage you not just to take whatever comes down the pike towards you. Rather stand up and say who you are Start declaring what God says about you. Start pushing back on the forces of darkness and say, no, you're not going to do that in my house. You're not going to do that with my kids. You're not going to do that in my marriage. You're not going to do that in my finances. You're not going to do that in my body. This is not going to happen. It's not going to continue. Start getting just a little bit ticked off. Not at God, not at your neighbor, at the devil. Write them a message in the bottom of your shoe. Call him a loser on the bottom. Of, hey, loser, on the bottom, because that's where he is. He's under your feet. See, there, there's an attitude here that we've got to stop being a victim and start realizing that we have been placed in Christ Jesus in heavenly places far above all kingdom and rule, that we aren't just dust in the wind, as the old Kansas song says. That's not who we are. Okay, we are not just dust in the wind, all right? We are here with a purpose. We're here for a reason, and God has a reason for us to be here. And it's worth it for us to push back on the enemy. And when, when, when the enemy says, and the doctor's reports, now doctors aren't our enemy, they're our friends. But when their reports say everything they can do is, is worthless, it's hopeless, and you're just gonna go the way of whatever they say, you can push back on them. But don't push back against them. Push back against the devil. You push back against the devil in your prayer closet. You don't have to argue with your doctor. Please don't, okay? Because it doesn't help. You could just smile, and I wouldn't even nod because I wouldn't accept what they're saying. But even when I was in my condition, when I had those circumstances and those symptoms, he looked at me and said, I'm sorry, but this is incurable. And I refused to go, okay, because I was not about to accept that diagnosis in my life. I just looked at him and I said, so that's your opinion. That's, that's how I answered. 
And he says, yes, that's what these x-rays say. And yes, this is what medical science says. I said, so that's your opinion. I said, okay, that's your opinion. I said, I have a different opinion, but okay, that's your opinion. That was always my response to him. It kind of irritated my doctor, actually. Because I kept on, every time he'd tell me how I was going to be sick for the rest of my life and how I was never going to be able to be active and I was never going to do this and I was never going to do that, I would always look at him and go, so that's your opinion. And he literally would go, yes, that's my opinion. Now, why do you always say that? I said, because I have a different opinion. And I don't want to argue with you because I respect you and I need you because you're a really smart guy and a good doctor and I respect that. But I believe God and I believe that I'm going to, that I am awaiting my manifestation of healing and I don't think that it has to be the way you said. So that's just your opinion. And I have a different opinion because mine's based on scripture. And I'd smile at him and he'd go, you're one of those. I said, I'm one of those. I just smile at him. And that's okay because I was, and he, Here's the thing, when he saw the healing manifested, he just kind of went, turned his head sideways and goes, I don't have anything else to say. I said, yeah, your opinion was wrong. <laughs> See, and, and I, I wasn't mean or you know, sassy about it, but I was very happy, obviously. See, so we've got to exercise our God-given authority and not just take whatever comes down the pike toward us. Lastly, we need to declare God's word. Declare it. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those that love it will eat its fruit. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 13. We have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I speak. If you believe, you need to speak. I believe, therefore I speak. So we've got to speak what God says about us. We can't just be silent. We, we, we've got to say what God says about us and not just be silent but you gotta be careful who you say it to. Mostly you say it to yourself and you say it to God and you say it to the devil. That's literally, it's not necessarily for public consumption because they'll all think you're crazy, okay? But it's okay, but you don't have to go tell everybody and their brother you don't have, where they wanna argue with you and convince you otherwise. But there must be a point at which you believe you receive before you see it. See, Abraham believed he received his promise of being the father of many nations long before he saw the actual manifestation of Isaac. You're, there comes a point where you've got to believe that you receive it before you see it, before it actually shows up. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. In due season, what is due season? It could be anything from a day to five years, I don't know. But the point is, you stay in the fight. Because what are your options? Give up? That's your only option. I'd say it's not a good option. So if you're in a fight, just don't quit. If you're in a fight, keep fighting. Keep talking. Keep saying what God says about you. Let us not grow weary. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all to stand, stand. And then finally, we need to thank God before we see it. And one of the things I love about Abraham, again, it says he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith by praising God. One of the ways that he strengthened his faith is that he praised God. 
There's a principle and there's a pattern there that when we are in the middle of a fight, we have got to praise God in the middle of our fight because we're, we get our faith strengthened when we will praise God even when we don't see the answer. I think when we say, thank you, Lord, that I'm well, when you feel like dirt, I think God goes, hey, see him? He's trusting me. Boy, I like that. It says there's, that's the number one way to please God is to have faith. And when you say what God says about you, even if you don't see it, you know what that is? That's a manifestation of faith. And you start walking around in your prayer closet and you start declaring who God is, what God's done for you, and what you are in Christ. You know what God does? God takes notice and he said, he's, he's, he, he's saying my words. Hey, hey, angels, get down there, quick. Get down there. You watch over, because he watches over his word to perform it. His word cannot return to him void, Isaiah 55 says. He watches like as the rain comes down and it doesn't return back up to the, to the sky without it watering the earth and bringing forth the bud, Isaiah 55, look it up. So shall my word be, it will not return to me through this, see that's how it returns, is through our lips. It will not return to me without power unless it accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. And why was the word sent? He sent, Psalm 106, he sent his word and healed them. Psalm 107, 20. He sent his word and healed them. So what was the purpose of God's word? To heal us. One of the purposes was to heal us. And when we return God's word to him, it can't return to him without power, but only after it accomplishes the purpose for which it's sent. So when we start talking God's word, when we start just walking around, I, I walk and pray. That's what I do. I don't just sit still because when I sit still in the morning, I fall asleep. So I can't... <laughs> Nobody else, is, nobody else has that problem? Okay, you're all more spiritual than me. I need to walk and pray because otherwise I fall back asleep. So I walk and pray, okay? So when I'm walking and praying, I'm just thanking God. And I, I wave my arms and I don't know why I do it. I just do it because I'm happy. And God says, there's my son, look at him. He's quoting my word, look at him. Isn't he quite a sight? Hey, let's, let's we watch, that's my word he's quoting, you know, I said I watch over my word to perform it. Better get busy, somebody. Make sure that happens. What he's saying, make sure that's true. Make sure that comes to pass in his life because I watch over my word to perform it because I'm not a man that I should lie, but I accomplish the things for which I sent and I'm, I always keep my promises and he's quoting my promises, so let's get busy. Fill up his barns, heal his body, do whatever it takes, make it happen. And that's what God does when we repeat his word, when we start thanking him. See, the manifestation of healing is not when healing occurred. Healing actually occurred at the whipping post. That's when it was purchased. Your healing actually occurred at the whipping post when Jesus was whipped he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for his, our iniquities. The chastisement or punishment that brought us peace, wholeness, was laid upon him. And by his stripes, we were healed. Your healing actually took place at the whipping post. So we're not awaiting for God to do anything else. For us to say, oh God, heal me. 
He doesn't have to heal you. He's already provided and paid for our healing. What we do is we thank God that it's already been provided for. Thank you for the manifestation of healing. That's fine. But the actual transaction has already taken place at the whipping post. It's already done. It's accomplished. It's included in the atoning work of Christ. When Jesus said it is finished, it really was finished. Everything he needed to do was done. When he, when he shed his blood, it's done. So all we have to do is receive it. We have to just say, thank you, Jesus, that I receive everything you purchased for me. I receive it all. I receive healing in my body. I receive peace in my mind. I receive wholeness in my soul. I receive all those things because they're already purchased. They're already paid for. For us not to receive them is not right because he's already paid for them. I don't like it myself when I give someone a gift and they go like this, yeah, thanks. I don't like that. Anybody else like that? When you give somebody a gift and they look at it and go, oh, and they toss it aside. That's, that's insulting, isn't it? To me it is. I don't, I'm like, give it back. <laughs> if you're gonna treat it like that, right? See, and, but that's what Jesus, Jesus gave us a gift. So we need to understand and receive it and purposefully receive the gift that Jesus has given for us and not just shirk it off or just throw it aside like it's something common or something that doesn't apply. It's real, and he gave it to us. He shed his blood for us. And we have a responsibility to, to, to really study it out and really to receive everything that God has for us. I am so over time, it's not funny. So we're gonna call it a night. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to call it a night, all right? Because it's already 7.40. I could go for hours. So it's already been an hour that I've been speaking, and you guys are all still here. Thank you. Thank you for being here. What's that? <laughs> What's another hour? I could probably do that, but not tonight. How about next week? We'll do it next week. Let's pray. And if uh, anybody wants to come up afterwards, I'll be here until... Uh, He'll tell all the people are gone. So we'll gladly pray with you or whatever. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your anointing. Thank you, Father, upon each believer that your anointing rests upon each of us as believers. Father, we thank you for your grace, that your grace is abundant today, that it's not just a matter of our works. It's a matter of us receiving what you've already provided for us. We thank you and we praise you for who you are, for what you've done, for what you've purchased, for how much you love us. Father, thank you for your love and thank you for your grace today. That's more than enough to overcome every situation we have in our lives. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this series. For more information, call 616-534-4923 or visit us at reslife.org.